Have you heard of the little old lady, the only one in her household who suddenly one night came to know Christ as her Savior? And her people of her family didn't know much about it. They were sort of religious, but didn't pay much attention to it. But now there was somebody in the house that was really excited. One night she came home from prayer meeting, and somebody in the household said, Did you have a good time? She said, Oh, we had such a wonderful time. She said, You know, we seem to have better times when I give my testimony. <laughs> And you know that's true, isn't it? When you participate, that's what does it. Well, you dear people just don't know, as I was sitting here, some of you are new to me tonight. Some of you I've only known for a little while. Some I've known way back when. We wouldn't dare, we wouldn't want to tell you how long ago. But there are so many of you that I thank God for, as Paul says, upon every remembrance. I think of the older ones and the fellowship we had. There wasn't any better, was there? Olsons and some of you others, there wasn't any better. And I used to think that this group in Genoa City was the most gracious group of Christians I had ever known, and I still think so. And then I think of their children and children's children, and I think of some of the new ones that have come in. I just thank God. I think of your pastor. And uh, I don't know, they must not be telling me the whole truth. All I've heard about them is good. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm just so grateful for what God is doing here. And you may be assured that our prayers are very much with Brother Ware and Ruth. Especially Ruth, we want her to be whole every whit, don't we? <laughs> Even if she did warn her husband against me one time. We, uh, we want her to be really well. And, uh, well, this is Thanksgiving week. This is the day, the night before Thanksgiving. And I think Thanksgiving is the greatest holiday of the year. Take them all. Give me Thanksgiving. And I think we ought to give thanks in our churches, in our homes, and in our hearts with everything that's in us. He's been so very good to us. Now, I, I wish you'd turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you to keep your finger there because we're going to be referring to it again and again. And while you're looking up 2 Corinthians 4, I might just say the December searchlight just rolled in this afternoon. So I took half a dozen with me. One had to go to the pastor. There are two board members here. I had to give them each one. So the other three are for the audience. <laughs> They're back there. May I say, if you get it, don't, don't take one. If you don't get it, then there are two copies there, and I promise to try to remember to bring this one back to Now then, 2 Corinthians 4, please, beginning at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you, we having the same spirit of faith as the psalmist. That's what he's talking about, because he says, as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, 
and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. Now, this is the verse I want you all to pay special attention to. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Beloved, I believe that at the root of Paul's amazing, breathtaking ministry was his deep gratitude. Do you know that in Paul's epistles we have the word thanksgiving in one of its forms? I give thanks or we give thanks or thanks be unto God more than 50 times in the epistles of Paul alone, more than 50 times. Do you know how often you find it in the whole rest of the New Testament scriptures? 21 times. Now, the rest of the so-called New Testament is two and a half times at least as voluminous as Paul's letters. So that makes a ratio of six to one, just about. For every time that anybody else said, oh, thank God, Paul says it six times. <laughs> he was so grateful that God had taken him, the chief of sinners, and saved him and given him the high honor of going everywhere to tell men about the grace of God. He was so grateful. Now compare this first with Romans 1. Let's turn, please, to the first chapter of Romans. If you want to see why this world is really going to pot, as they say, if you want to see why all the superstition and it's increasing in the United States of America, all the superstition and the fear and the worry and the frustration and all of that, if you want to know why all the sad things that go with paganism uh, came to be right here in Romans 1, it is. Let's look, beginning at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they didn't know him personally, but they knew who the true God was. They knew God. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Disrespect and unthankfulness, they were the two uh, qualities, if you please, the two uh, parts of their nature that pulled them down. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain, shallow in their imaginations or their reasonings. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves. You know who the intellectuals in this world are? It's really funny, but you watch it. You'll see it so. The intellectuals of this world are those who are told by other intellectuals that they're intellectual. That's all it is. It's a clique. It's a club. And you've got to get into the elite, <laughs> you know, uh, before you can really be counted an intellectual today. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God unto an image made like unto corruptible man. Now notice, I'm sorry, even the New King James Bible, which the New Testament appeals to me very much, but the New King James Bible, even there, even that one fails. It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they exchange the glory of God, of the incorruptible God. Uh, but it doesn't say that. Really, it is they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. 
They didn't say, well, I'll leave God and I'll go to this, not until later. What they did was to change his glory in their thinking, you see. They changed it and they said, this is God. He's a man or he's like a, like a wild beast. He hates us when a storm comes or something like that, you see. He changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. And then they go to animals, birds, quadrupeds, four-footed beasts, and snakes, reptiles, creeping things. You know, I took the trouble when I was writing this book. Excuse me, now I'm having trouble with my preaching glass. I put my other ones on. You don't mind. Uh, and when I wrote this book on Romans, the commentary on Romans, I took the time to look up some of the gods of the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians were intellectual people. The Egyptians could do things that we, can't, we don't know how to do today. One of the so-called eight wonders of the world are the pyramids. No engineer on earth today knows how they did it, and they wouldn't know how to do it today. And that's only the beginning of it. Physics they were something else again. In the pyramid is something nobody today can understand how they knew this. There is one uh, uh, way or one, uh, one, one opening from the bottom of the pyramid which no matter how the world turns, what its position is, is always pointed to the North Star. And what made them give such attention to the North Star? And in geometry and all of that, they were right up there. And we read about Moses, that he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. But isn't it strange that smart people can be so stupid? <laughs> is, and you see it today. Here men with fantastic minds are putting up images of Mary with a bleeding heart or whatever, you know, and they fall down and worship before them. They have St. Christopher, uh, 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 an idol, <laughs> excuse me, uh, an image, in the front of their car so they won't have an accident. I mean men of, of great intellect. Here's what some of the gods of the Egyptians were. It is significant that the Egyptians, with all their intellectual superiority, yet worshipped the hawk, the bull, the cow, the cat, the frog, the baboon, the jackal, the crocodile, and other beasts and reptiles. Think of it. Men with all the learning that God speaks of and, and recognizes all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and yet these, look out for that cat, he'll get you. Because the cat, some cat had done something one time that made somebody think it was a god. Sad. But that's coming here in America today, my friend. Coming right here in America. Now then, even down to creeping things, reptiles, they went and worshipped them. Wherefore, God also gave them up. To what? You know, this is what most people don't know about pagan religions. They are morally filthy. Morally filthy. When uh, Hudson uh, first came, Hudson Taylor, first came to China as a missionary and learned about Buddhism, he fell on his knees and says, Oh, God, is this what Buddhism is? He had been reading all their nice quotations, you know, and about their meditation and all of that. And he didn't realize the rot and the filth. Well, here it is. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. He didn't instill that in them. He just gave them up to be what they wanted to be without any restraints. To dishonor dishonor, get that their own bodies. People today talk about you need to have dignity, you know, and self-respect, and they throw it away by their immorality. 
dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen, Paul says you couldn't change him, really. They only changed him in their thinking. They thought this is what God is. Look at this terrible storm he sent. And they connected with some animal who's angry or whatever. For this cause, here it says, they changed the truth of God into a lie. For which cause, for the second time it says, he gave them up to what? Now affections, that's a wonderful word. True affection, wholesome love is so wonderful. But vile affections. He gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women, even their women, did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another. Men with men, working that which is shameful is the word, unseemly. It's an old English word. Today we'd say doing that which is shameful. And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet, which was just and fitting. And even as they did not like to retain God, that is God as he really is, the true God, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, there it is a third time, he gave them over again to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness and so on somebody says you mean it, it got to be that bad yes it did well with all the learning that there was since it must have changed a good deal by Paul's day did it? Look at Ephesians 4, but stay in Romans 1. Let's see, that's 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 1. Now please look at Ephesians chapter 4 and see what Paul says about those of his day. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse uh, 17, where Paul writes to these saved Gentiles. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye walk not henceforth as other Gentiles, the unsaved Gentiles walk. What's this say? The vanity of their mind, the shallow. Isn't it true, beloved Christian friend, the simplest Christian can often hear those who are on talk shows and so on, on radio and TV, and say how stupid they are. How stupid they are. I talked to my friend uh, Scott, Betty Scott's brother, some time ago in Philadelphia, and he was going to the University of Penn. I said, how do you like it? He said, well, what I'm studying, I enjoy. I like it very much. But he said, where... Anything that matters as all, at all is concerned, he's, I'm almost ashamed to say this, but as a Christian, I listen to these professors and I think, what a stupid man you are. Is <laughs> I feel way ahead of them. Of course he does. He said, you know what our professor said recently? We would be far better off if we walked like our forebears did on all fours. Then we wouldn't have fallen arches and fallen stomachs and this and that and the other thing. <laughs> now, isn't that about as stupid as you can get? No, you can get even worse than that, and they do. So he says, don't walk like them in the, in the shallowness of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Not very complimentary, is it? because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, licentiousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. That was Paul's day. Well, surely after the Greeks, who lived so near to Paul and Paul's own God-given wisdom, 
there's been a big change since then, has there? Could the world be more sex-mad than our beloved America is today? Just like in Paul's day, they go after uncleanness with greediness. I think maybe some of us, I, I can't say us because not me, but some of us maybe ought to go home and say, boy, does this magazine belong in my house? Get rid of it. Some of us had better not be careful that we couldn't even be suspected of being with those other Gentiles who go after uncleanness with greediness. May our homes be oases of wholesome, happy Christian living. I never, I don't think I'll ever forget when I first read uh, Dean Housen's book, Coney Baron Housen, but Housen was the main writer of uh, the uh, life and epistles of Paul. And he describes the end of the book of Acts, how these poor homosexuals under Nero turned out to be some of the men who guarded Paul. And he says, how the wholesome Christian atmosphere of Paul's cell must have had its effect upon them. That's true. And a Christian home, my dear friend, there is nothing like a Christian home in this wicked world today. Well, we must go on. Go back, please, again to 2 Corinthians. Here is the picture of the world as we have it still today. God gave up the Gentiles long ago, but then he did something wonderful. He gave up the Jew, too. And he threw them both into the arms of his mercy. He concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Now then, go back to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, with this in mind. We have this treasure. What is this treasure? Well, he says in verse 3 and 4, the gospel of the grace of God, all the riches of God's grace, a heavenly position, heavenly blessings, a heavenly prospect. Someday in reality, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace. How? In his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Salvation, full justification before the bar of the judge of all, before the bar of God. And oh, how much more. All of this is the good news of the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. But what kind of a vessel does he put this treasure in? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul himself, as you can see from the whole context, felt himself to be one. We don't take rubies and diamonds and precious stones and keep them in earthen vessels. They're too fragile. They're too easily broken. We put them in strong boxes of steel and iron. But Paul says, this fabulous treasure we have in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're going to see more as we go along. They looked at Paul, he says, in your presence I'm mean and contemptible. Mean, mean, meaning lowly lowly and contemptible. But yet when they saw him, there was a tremendous power there. Thousands saved and their homes changed and their directions changed. And instead of fearful and superstitious and troubled and, and uh, frustrated, now they're happy and confident and have joy and peace. From this little man? <laughs> From that little Paul? Yes, God has put this treasure in Paul and in us. Poor earthen vessels that none may question. It wasn't I that did it. It was he that did it, you see, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So my dear Christian friend, please don't think that God can't use you. You're the kind he wants to use. But I can't speak. Did he say you had to speak? That is, testify, yes, but preach. 
But I can't sing like Lois or Eunice did. Well, neither can I. <laughs> so you've got a bow. No, he says he puts this treasure in earthen vessels. And not only that, but here come all the elements to break that earthen vessel, to crack it and break it apart and smash it to pieces. Let's look. We are troubled on every side, but I want you to notice the note of victory all through, too, and how full of metaphors. Paul and metaphors go together. Those little likenesses, just a word sometimes, just a little phrase, but it's got some, like earthen vessels. That's one of his metaphors. We have this in earthen vessels. Now, we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. You see what God is doing? Before I go further, I must say this yet. God is showing that the instrumentality used is so altogether disproportionate to the tremendous results that men have to say it's God working. And they'll say it sooner. A man said to me some time ago, you know, I want to testify, but boy, it's a terrible thing. I tremble and I shake when I do it. I said, well, that may have make a greater impression on the one you testify to. He must know you're dead in earnest if you're trembling and you're testifying to him. He knows you mean it. He knows it wasn't easy to do. He should certainly respect and appreciate that. Well, here's Paul now, that poor earthen vessel, troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Now, the word troubled on every side is really a very small phrase, almost like a word together. Every side. It's a metaphor from the uh, wrestling match. This man has me around and he's got me closed in tighter and tighter. He'd like to suffocate me, but not yet. No, no. I'm hard-pressed, but not crushed, you see. Uh, I'm perplexed, but not in despair. He says that in Romans 8, 26, 27. Uh, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. How often we found ourselves in places like that. All did. I don't know what to pray for even. But I'm not in despair. I know he knows and he cares. He'll make no mistakes. Uh, the ninth verse. This is evidently from the arena with the lions in it. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Now the persecuted has the idea of being harassed. On every side, there they come. This one has this fault to find and this one, that one. You've heard about the pastor and there was one man in the church and every Sunday when he left church he'd have some criticism to make he'd say to the pastor you talk too much about sin and he'd walk out and the next Sunday he'd say you preached too long this morning and then go the next Sunday he'd say I didn't get a thing out of it and every Sunday something was wrong and finally one of the deacons whispered to the pastor don't mind him he's only repeating what the people say <laughs> <laughs> well Paul says I'm being attacked on every side but not forsaken I feel so long he was like Daniel in the lion's den there they were hungry lions ready to devour him but in the morning time when the king said are you there Daniel did your God save you Daniel says the God has shut the lion's mouth Daniel was safe. Then the next one is interesting. That's from the boxing ring. Cast down, but not destroyed. One of our modern versions, and I don't like to tell you which one because I don't want to push these modern versions. Most of them are terrible when you add everything up. Excuse me, and if you have them, please understand. I don't mean to be this guy. <laughs> but you know what it really is there? Knocked down but not out. It's the boxing ring, see. And I can imagine that count, you know, one, two, three, gets up to seven, eight, not. There he's up again. <laughs> How often that happened in Paul, Paul's life? You think this is the end, 
but from one riot into another. One place they have to smuggle him out and he has to go, as it were, by sea, but he has to sneak out another way. Another way, another time, they have to save him from going in. He wanted to go in, let me in, let me in. He wanted to go into that uproar at Ephesus, but they wouldn't let him. Another time they stoned him and left him for dead. Oh, again and again it looked like Paul was knocked out, but no, no, no. Down, but not out. Now then, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Do you realize, dear friend, I wonder whether reading 2 Corinthians 11 you have ever noticed Five times Paul received 39 stripes, but that's not the way it says it. You know how it says it. Five times I received what? Somebody speak out at school here tonight. 40 stripes save one, right? Five times I received, why does he say 40 stripes but one less? Why didn't he just say 39 stripes? He could just as easily have said that. Is five times I received 40 stripes. Say, well, what's so terrible about that? I'll tell you what's so terrible. They had a law in the books of Rome. We still have it today. The records are right there. Never scourge a man with 40 stripes. You'll kill him. So what they did was they just whipped a little harder and gave him 39. Five times 40 stripes save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was even worse. They were clubs. They could really bash a man badly and break his spine even. Three times. Once I was stoned and left for dead, as you know. That same chapter says, in death, often, often. Why all this? Well, look at verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Isn't it interesting all that Paul went through? Read that 11th of 2 Corinthians when you get home tonight. Oh, what a terrible, terrible list of, of afflictions and sufferings to have to go through. Well, he says, this was all that life might be shown in my body, this same body, for you. When the people listened to him, they didn't, they didn't see a man that was all down. He had been persecuted so badly and everybody's against me. And so, no, a man that had a, a, a wonderful glowing message for them. A man who had a message of life, 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 instead of this terrible death that has assaulted us all. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. He was feeling it day after day. There seemed to be just no time when death wasn't right there close at hand. That the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our body. For we which live, we believing witnesses which live, are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. You know that great verse in Colossians 1, verse 24. I rejoice, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which still remains or still, how does it go in our version still is left or still is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Oh, wait a minute. You mean Christ didn't suffer fully for us? You mean that his death was not enough? Oh, indeed it was. And he's gone to heaven and the work is finished. And when he had finished his work, he went back home and sat down with his father. The work was done. Well, what's this filling up what still remains? Oh, You'd think the world would have grasped after that wonderful message of grace when Saul of Tarsus was saved, made Paul, and sent forth as an ambassador of grace and an ambassador with an offer of reconciliation to God's enemies everywhere. You'd think they would have grasped after it. But even to this day, that message that ought to 
fill the headlines of the papers every day. Another day, another day, another day of grace. Instead, they turn their backs on it, and those who preach it are persecuted. Those who preach it in any power. So Paul says, I'm glad. I'm filling up that which still remains of the sufferings of Christ. He's not suffering. Thank God he's blessed forever, as Paul said about the Father. Ah, but he's, he would have been here, but they didn't want him. They said, away with him. Get him out of here. And they sent him back to heaven as a royal exile. And if the Psalms, had, if the prophecies had been fulfilled then, if God had continued with prophecy, what would have happened? Oh, you know that Psalm 2 is a favorite of mine. Why do the nations rage and the people, Acts 4 says, as the people of Israel imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth uh, take counsel together. And um, how does that go again? The, sorry, the kings of the earth, the... the Something about being set there. Look it up for me a second. Well, let's get it complete. The kings of the earth have set themselves. That's it. The kings of the earth have set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and let us cast their cords from us. According to prophecy, what was God's response going to be? Well, read on. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He'll laugh at them. Oh, you think you're going to do away with the one I have ordained to be king? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. That was the next thing on the program of God, beloved. Peter said it in Acts 2. This is that, this is it, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. What was spoken by Joel? Two things Joel prophesied. I'll pour out of my spirit upon my own, they'll need it, and I'll pour out my wrath upon my enemies. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, so angry God will be. But God is rich in mercy, plenteous in mercy, and slow to anger. And he said, no, not yet, not yet. And he takes the leader of the world's rebellion against Christ and against himself, and he saves him. And he says, Paul, I want you to go tell everybody, tell everybody, I don't want to punish them. Offer them, tell them I want them to be reconciled to me. And Paul says it right there. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we pray you in Christ's stead. He can't be here. You don't want him. If you were here, they'd crucify him or do something equal again. They'd kill him again. So he's not here, but he sends us. There can be no greater proof, technically, of the fact that this is the dispensation of the grace of God then that the book of Acts closes with Paul in jail. He's left there. God's ambassador of grace put in jail, and God leaves him there. You know as well as I do, thank God, I don't know how it would have been with the last few presidents, but with the one we've got anyway. I don't mean he's perfect in every way. But if uh, one of the countries of Europe should put our ambassador in jail... We declare war tomorrow. They took God's ambassador of love and peace and grace and mercy and reconciliation and they threw him in jail. And God left him there. <laughs> Even before that, Paul knew the score. He knew what it was all about. They still didn't want him. The wonderful message, but God was touching hearts here and there and building up the body of Christ. Well, that's why he says, I'm filling up that which remains, or that which still is left, of the sufferings of Christ for his body's sake, which is the church. That's why in entirely another vein, another attitude, or another tone, he says to the Galatians, who did want to be under the law, these religious people, they still wanted to... Uh, make the law their boast, you know. 
Remember how Paul closed Galatians 6 toward the end? Henceforth, let no man, don't bother me. If this doesn't convince you, if you just want to quibble and argue and not receive the grace of God, henceforth, let no man trouble me. I have work to do. Let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the marks, and there the word is the brand, the burning marks of Christ Jesus. He was in earnest about it. Well, let's go on there in verse, uh, verse 12 then. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. I used to wonder, what, what does he mean by that? Death worketh in us, but life in you. Well, don't you see, it was in this poor, weak vessel being battered and beaten and, and hit from every side that God, from that weak vessel, God was bringing such great results. And he says, so death works in me and life in you. That's how you were saved, you see. We could read it this way. Death, or this is a, the fact of it anyway. Death working in us works life in you. You see, we having the same spirit of faith. I love what he says in the very first chapter here. We had the, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. One of the writers of that book I gave you, I've forgotten his name now, I, I can never pronounce it, but he said something that to me was really great. He says to Christians, why should we be so hesitant to give to God what he's so soon going to take from us anyway. <laughs> Meaning myself and all I have. You see, give it to him. Soon you're going to give it away anyway. He's going to take you and it'll all be left. Well, here it is. He says, we, we having the same spirit of faith. According as it is written, Psalm 116, I believed and therefore have I spoken. I may have a weak body. I may be attacked on every hand. The devil may be doing everything to break down my ministry, but I believe this and therefore have I spoken. Speak. Oh, I wish we had more people like Paul here. They think he's such a bold, great, powerful man. No, he wasn't. He writes to these same Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the, the first chapter. I was with you, the second chapter, I'm sorry, in the third verse. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Think of it. Well, that's more like me. <laughs> you see, I have, I can communicate with that. Well, but he says, I do believe something. I believe it. I believe it. I can't, I can't be quiet about it. It's the truth. It's the truth. Amen. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Paul says, maybe I will break down. Maybe finally they will hit me so hard. Maybe finally it won't be left for dead, but I'll be taken. Well, he says, so what? We have the sentence of death in ourselves that we might trust in God who raises the dead. <laughs> you see? Not the God who somehow will keep me living and strong and... No, no, no. What if we, we believe in... What if we should be put to death for Christ, Paul says? We believe in God who raises the dead. And if you'll let me digress just a moment, and I'm nearly through. If you'll let me digress just a moment, if there's one verse, I, I, I haven't been in a cemetery service for a long time out in the cemetery because I haven't been able to take it really. I have a problem. But anyway, there's one verse I used to love to use there, and I'd watch the, the effect on the audience. 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, But some man will say, how are the dead raised? And what, what body do they come? And that's not a sincere question. It's a challenge. You can tell the way he answers, Thou fool. Here they come. The college professor and all his uh, senior students and 
They say, all out of breath, they say, well, biologically and, uh, and uh, uh, according to every science that has to do with it, the resurrection of the dead, that is impossible. It cannot be. Paul says, is that so? You come simpering to me and say that it is impossible. You fool, look around you. <laughs> look at the fields you've sown. That which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. The Lord Jesus said the same thing, except a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it's nothing. Nothing more than that stone next to it. But if it die, oh, there it comes up, often certainly more productive than it was before. It bringeth forth much fruit. So Paul says, we trust in God who raises the dead. He's going to raise me up. He's going to raise you up and present us together in his glory. Now then, verse 15, and this is my text. Verse 15. For all things, these things, these troubles and sorrows and attacks and opposition and afflictions, all these things are for your sakes. And not only that, all the life and joy and peace and what we've also been reading about, all the victory over these uh, testings, all these things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound. You know what that word redound means? You have exactly the same thing in Romans 5, 20 and 21. Where sin did, what's the next word? Abound. Grace did much more abound. Really, that's one word, you see. Superabound. Really, the word is like a flood tide. It overflows everything, you see. That where sin abounded, grace took care of it all. There's nothing left to be concerned about. It covers everything. Well, here he's got the same idea. That the abundant grace of God to you and me, poor sinners. The abundant grace of God to you and me, believing saints whom he's willing to use. Might through the thanksgiving giving of many there's the word redound much more abound overflow to the glory of God isn't that beautiful all oh, that we might see how God is pleased and, and gratified and rejoices as we give thanks to him think of it that the Abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God for the which cause we faint not. <laughs> I'm going to stop there, but I'm reminded of an old lady. It's the second old lady tonight. An old Dutch lady. And she used a word. Any Hollanders here? Raise your hand. No, am I all alone? Uh, she used a word. There's just nothing for it in English. You couldn't. It's a word prettig, P-R-E-T-T-I-G, and that means so, so satisfying. And this, I'd have to use maybe half a dozen words and explain them. But she said, I never knew that to be a Christian, you could be so, you might say, full of thanks. You know what I mean? Such a happy, such a joyous. I never knew she thought it was religion. She thought you had to become religious and then get real serious and don't do this and don't do that. She didn't know that Christianity is such a wonderful thing. Thank God we do. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't. Anybody unsaved? Oh, what a shame. It would be if you left this place tonight still a stranger to God. He doesn't want you to be. He has stepped into this auditorium tonight by his spirit and by his word, and he's spoken to you. 
God couldn't have made himself any clearer to us than he could by the spoken word. He's explained it all. And he's told us how in all our sins he himself said, oh, I can't let that go that way. And he sent Christ, his son. He came himself, God the son, into this world to bear all the heckling and the criticism and the fault-finding and the hate to hear and see all the acrimony instead of the beautiful uh, joy and everything going right in heaven came to take it all and then to go to Calvary and there he stood before first the, the Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priest and then Herod and then Pilate and they witnessed everything against him and he answered them to never a word didn't answer a thing why not why, he could have tied them up in a thousand knots. He says, yes, and you, he could have said I, and, and things that other people knew about him, but he had never told. He could have really made trouble for them that day. But he answered them to never a word. And the, the pilot said, don't you hear how many things they witness against you? Still not a word. Why? Because he was guilty. Oh, you say, no, he was, yeah, he was awesome. <laughs> He was standing there, not only for us, as us. God hath made him to be what? Not just to bear the sin. God hath made him to be sin. Just as the devil was the personification of sin, so there for the moment, voluntarily, that Holy One was made to be sin for us. Dr. Haldeman years ago preached a sermon uh, lost by a serpent, saved by a serpent and he dealt with the serpent in the wilderness. Why did God use a serpent there? That was typical. Why did he use a serpent? Ah, oh, because Christ was for a little while going to be made himself. The personification of sin and they could look and say every sin they had ever committed they could have blamed on him because he was representing them representing you and me that's a wonderful thing oh I pray if you're not saved tonight believe that he came into this world for just one reason why was he there as the bearer of sin if on Jesus thy guilt was not laid why from his side flowed the sin cleansing blood if his dying thy death hath not paid shall we pray our heavenly father we pray that if there should be even one here tonight not saved, that that one may not gamble when the stakes are so high, when the danger is so great, but help that one, man, woman, young person, with a whole heart to say, Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe that thou didst die for me. I trust thee as my Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Amen. Thank you, dear brother.